Let's pray together this morning before we read. Father, we come to you together. And while we can have personal relationship with you, you have called us to relate to you as a people. You have called us not just as individuals, something that's seldom uh, mentioned in the Bible, but as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people called for your own possession. And so with that in mind, God, even as we come together today to celebrate at the Lord's table, even as we come and greet one another in the name of the Lord this morning, God, I pray that you would bind us together as your people, not by pursuing community, but by pursuing you. And that as we each grow in the truth of the gospel, as we each are sanctified in the truth, as we grow in our relationship with you, that you would bind us together as a people, that we would love each other as the body, we would love each other well. And so with that in mind, Lord, we pray for those who are ill. We pray that you would heal them. We ask for this. We ask that you would give them strength. We ask that you would glorify yourself in their situation and that you would give them peace. And we also ask that you would help us to be the church, caring for the body. Lord, the same with those who have needs this morning of whatever kind, whether they're relational or financial or other. Father, we ask that you would be our provider. You would meet those needs. But we also ask that you would use your body, the church, to accomplish your purposes here, that you would be glorified by the way that we love one another. Father, I pray for your church this morning, here and everywhere else, that you would sanctify us, that you would continue to shape us in your image, that we would be iron sharpening iron with each other, that we would be patient with one another, patiently rebuking one another for sin and patiently receiving rebuke and coming to repentance. Change our hearts, O oh God. You do not ask for other sacrifices than a contrite heart. And so, Lord, we come to you and ask you for such a heart. Give us a heart of repentance this morning. But even as we come to your word, we would be convicted and be joyful about it. Because this is what we're here for. Because what you command, you provide. And so, Lord, as you give us incredible commands for righteousness, we thank you that we can trust you, that you will complete the work that you started in us. And so we listen to your word this morning with expectation and joy, knowing that you are at work in your church. Do this in us, we pray, for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen. We're looking at Psalm chapter 16 this morning. A miktam of David. This is the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Good morning. So, one of the things that is so compelling about the character of King David is that he fa faced countless trials and pressures in which we see all manner of wisdom and of folly. We see faithfulness and we see sin. We see obedience to God and disobedience to God. We see times of anxiety and times of great boldness. We see tears and we see gladness. Yet in the middle of all of these pressures and these failures, we are left with this commentary of his life, that King David was a man after God's own heart. We see that he faced many of the pressures that you and I face, and more, and yet he had a deep sure-footedness that ruled in his life. Even though the circumstances of his life were often chaotic, heartbreaking, and unpredictable, he was steadfast in his footing. It is my intention to walk through Psalm 16 with the hope that we would have a clear picture from the Word of God about what it means to have God as our refuge, and in seeing what this looks like, that we would give ourselves over to forsaking other places of refuge in order to find security in God alone. But why is this important to us this morning? Don't we live in a time and a place where we have unmatched security? Don't we have so much comfort? In some ways, yes, we do live in unmatched security and comfort. But if we open our eyes, I believe that we will see that our reality is actually more closely akin to what the prophet Isaiah said when he wrote, terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of the heavens are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it. It falls and will not rise again. You see, the earth staggers under wars, violence, political extremism, corruption, and human trafficking. Crime, murder, and theft abound. Inflation and economic uncertainty can threaten our comfortable lives. Sexual promiscuity, abortion, and assisted suicide are seen as basic rights, and those who would think otherwise are often labeled as bigoted. Marriage covenants evaporate into thin air. Self-harm, suicidal thoughts, anxiety, depression, these things haunt so many. Unity in the visible church is so uncommon. God is worthy of all honor at all times by all people, and yet he is often denied or ignored or outright mocked. In spite of the fact that the earth is staggering, it is like a drunken man right under our feet, we often go through our days feeling like we're in control and that we're pretty comfortable and secure. I think we can only feel this way if our hearts have become desensitized 
and we've closed our eyes to the incredible pain, suffering, and uncertainty of the world we do in fact inhabit. Tear the pit and the snare are upon us. If I personalize this a bit, it starts to hit home for me. In just the last couple of years, I've had a grandpa and a grandma who have gone through the last uh, months of their lives more alone than I would have liked. I've been a part of tension with family and friends as we've disagreed on how to interact with government laws relating to COVID. I have a coworker, he, she has a five-year-old son who's right now going through chemo for leukemia. I have friends who are being treated for anxiety and depression. I have two kids who struggle with hopelessly selfish hearts and experience by anger and violence and fear. I have people I love with sore backs and chronic headaches and stomach pains, and you can go on, our bodies are breaking down. At work, I'm a nurse who work, I work with people with dementia, um, and I've, I've walked with families through the last moments of, of their loved ones' lives. I've seen people grieving and trying to understand how a once loving mother or father could now be angry or, or violent or inappropriate. I've also been accused of mistakes that aren't mine. I've told lies and I've said things I regret and I've been part of mistakes and blunders that hurt other people. Now I don't share these things, you could all look up here and have a pity party for me this morning. I share all these things because I think if we stop and personalize it a bit, that you would look at your life and you would find that you have a list as long as mine that shows the, 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 the sin and the weight of transgression that we live under. You would find you've experienced very similar fear, loss, grief, sickness, separation, selfishness, and moral failure as I have. So we find that the world we live in is maybe not as comfortable and secure as we trick ourselves into thinking. As I said before, I think we tend to harden our hearts and close our eyes to this reality and simply ignore, ignore the pain and make the best of it. This morning, I'm hoping that we can, we can soften our hearts, that we can ask God that he would soften our hearts to seeing that we are actually vulnerable to the threat of death and sickness and broken relationships and moral failure. And instead of just living with apathy, that instead we would cry out with David through this psalm, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I wanna suggest that we will find our refuge in something. It might be financial security to buffer us from hurts and to provide pleasures. It might be from isolating ourselves and only having relationships with people who think similarly to us and care about the same things we do. It might mean hardening your heart to loss and just detaching yourself emotionally to everything, from everything. Maybe it'll be just searching for that one person you can hold on to to love and hold on tightly. There's all sorts of places we can go to to find refuge, but might I suggest that the loving hands of a sovereign God might just be the best and only true refuge. As we walk through Psalm 16, I wanna point out six ways that David took refuge in God. 
First, he would come to God and he would say, Lord, you are my Lord. Second, he recognized God as the greatest good in his life and the giver of all good things. Third, he delighted in those who worship God and then he refused to join in the, the idolatry of those around him. Fourth, he acknowledged the Lord's love and his sovereignty over his life, and he found it a delightful inheritance. Five, he came to God as his counselor and his helper. And finally, six, he realized that God in all his power was his refuge who would raise him from the dead. And so firstly, Lord, you are my Lord. So the first thing to notice is David is coming to the creator, the sovereign, the personal covenant-making and keeping God, and saying, you are my Lord. I say this because if you look carefully at verse 2, you will find that the first Lord, L-O-R-D, are all capitals. And the second Lord is capital L, lower case O-R-D. When translators translate the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, they use capital L-O-R-D. When it is lowercase, they mean Lord as in master or king. And so David says, I say to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, meaning the covenant God as seen in the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. This is the God who spoke the world into existence and who sustains it as it is. This is the God against whom Adam and Eve rebelled, and humanity has rebelled against ever since. This is the God who promised redemption from slavery to sin. This is the God um, who spoke to Moses in the desert. Oh, sorry, this is the God who came to Abraham in the desert and said, I will accomplish this redemption through your offspring. And then this is the same God who spoke to Moses in the desert and promised to save Israel from slavery to Egypt. And then he followed through on that promise. This God sustained the Hebrews, a multitude of them, through years in the desert. Sorry, I put my paper right on the mic. Uh, this is the God who gave the law and the sacrificial system that they might live at peace with the holy God. This God revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the thir third and fourth generation. This is the God who gave Israel victory and strength as they warred against the nations who held banners of idols, and finally, they found rest in the promised land. This is the God that David was now king under, and he was going to this God for refuge. And so I take all that time to kind of retrace God's faithfulness to his covenant people in order that we might see that David looked at God and knew him as he revealed himself as the covenant-making and keeping God. And then David would go personally to that God and say, Lord, you are my Lord. 
David personally submitted and surrendered his life to God, and he would go to him as a refuge um, by acknowledging he was small, and this God was faithful and true and very, very big. David had a posture of surrender and submission. Lord, you are my Lord. Number two, my only good. The second way that David came to God as a refuge is he acknowledged that God was his only good. Now you might ask, is he saying that the Lord is the only true good in his life? Or is he the one who gives him all the good things he has in his life? I would answer, yes. God is his only good. And God's goodness is partly communicated by giving him good things. We love God for his own sake because there's no greater good than a relationship with the God who has created us and redeemed us. And yet God also communicates his love to us through giving us good gifts. He desires us to enjoy these gifts because they are from him. Now when I say good gifts, I mean good things like having his love as a constant presence in our soul. I mean things like having the Holy Spirit teach you beautiful and profound truths as you seek him. I mean things like having a family and a family that, a family that you love and who loves you. I mean rich friendships, meaningful work, sometimes monotonous work that pays the bills, a good barbecue, or maybe just porridge to start the day. Maybe the gift of perseverance to face difficult times. Maybe the gift of a measure of meekness to be hurt without rebelling, without retaliating, sorry. I mean the gift of trust that God will provide for you even when you lose your job or inflation lifts hard, hits hard. I mean a deep-rooted confidence that God is good and that everything good you have is directly from his hand. It's remembering in the middle of a broken and heartbreaking world that every trial is purposed and allowed by our, lover, by our loving Heavenly Father to test our faith and develop perseverance and finally lead us to find the Lord as our greatest good. David lived like this, did he not? Did he not undergo countless trials and things um, in his life that he ultimately ended up seeing as God's good gift to him? And then he also experienced many, many times of forgiveness and of love, of gifts from his heavenly father, and he saw those as from his hand too. If we would join David in trusting God in this way, we would have all we need for our greatest good has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. Our greatest good has promised that he is working all things out for the good of those who love him. Number three, the third thing we discover about finding God as our refuge is that our affections are stirred toward worshipers and our eyes are open to the folly of idolatry. And so it matters who you admire, who you respect, and who you delight in. What I find compelling about David is that he had an intense delight in those who said to God, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. 
Now, the converse of this is that he saw through the shallow glory of idolatrous lifestyles, and he said, I will not. I will not love what they love or worship what they worship. And so we see that as our world is shaped by God and we find refuge in him, it means this so far, that we see and live with God as our greatest good, and because God is our greatest good, we love those, the saints, who delight in him. Conversely, we see that only sorrow can come from going to anything else to find meaning and satisfaction. This is the foundation for all security, but also for all love. If God is the only true and foundational good, will not love always be pointing others toward him? Won't it mean calling people out of the vanity of their idol worship that leads to sorrow and inviting them into a living and vital relationship with their creator? But make no mistake, there is a clear and deep line in the sand. We are not to engage in idolatry to win idolaters to God. David resolutely says, I will not. I will not join them. I will not delight in what they delight in. So I was reading a book um, called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, in which he traces his path to becoming convinced of the truth of Christianity. Um, at a certain point in the book, he describes how it was very popular among his friends and his colleagues to accept the doctrine that all religions basically agree in meaning, but differ in machinery. Said that all, they thought that all religions teach against things like lying and murder and stealing and all those sorts of things, and to become a better person and to make a better world. They just differ in the creeds and the message they use, use to teach and encourage people um, in that direction. Uh, he says that saying this is rather like alluding to the obvious connections between the two ceremonies of the sword, when it taps a man's shoulder and when it cuts off his head. It is not at all similar for the man. He acknowledges that most religions have creeds and temples and rites and traditions, and he acknowledges that most of humanity even agrees that we are in a net of sin, and even that there might be some way out of that net. But he insists that it's the way in which we get out that religions sharply contradict one another. To illustrate this, he tells about how before he became convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity, he believed that Christianity and Buddhism were alike. But one thing about his limited knowledge of them perplexed him. He was perplexed in the great difference between their religious art. In the art, the Buddhist saint always seemed to have a sleek and harmonious body, but his eyes are shut and he is looking with a peculiar intentness inwards. In contrast, he started to notice that in Christian art, the Christian saint's body was wasted to its crazy bones, but his eyes are frightfully alive, and he is looking with a frantic intentness outwards to God's historical acts of love and redemption. I believe this illustrates kind of what's at the heart of Christianity. We, with eyes of frightful wonder, look at what God has done for us on the cross. As we stare continually at the justice and the love of God, 
we are more and more changed um, into the likeness of his love and his moral perfection. Those who close their eyes and look inwards only find darkness and multiply their sorrows. Now, Eastern culture and medicine and spirituality, which is rooted in pantheistic belief, is influencing our culture at an alarming rate. Yoga, reflexology, acupuncture, meditation, naturopaths, how we view food and nature, achieving morality through introspection and self-change. We need great wisdom in how to discern what to outright reject, what to treat carefully, and what to redeem as good because God ultimately made these things in the first place. I've had multiple friends who have gotten involved in yoga and praised its ability to relax the mind and distress in their week. As this pattern began to emerge in multiple friends, this question began to gnaw at my mind. Is it because we have found so little consolation and peace in our times of prayer, so little satisfaction in our times of worship, that we are running to find answers from somewhere else? If so, God help us. We will seek peace and, prosper, uh, peace and security somehow. The stress of our life and the anxiety in our heart will have to be filled somewhere. It is not in our nature to be still while our hearts are restless and anxious. My assertion is that if we have not found God to be a deep and abiding refuge who effectively leads us to peace, that we become very vulnerable to idolatry. The most effective weapon against sin and idolatry is finding deep and abiding satisfaction in God. And so David has said that his delight is in the saints and that he will not join in with idolaters. David's love is for God and a direct causality from that is his love is for the saints. He loves it when God is honored and treasured and obeyed. And he finds his delight in those who would worship and adore the God that he worships and adores. When we were doing premarital counseling, the counselor uh, told us an analogy that if you take a triangle and you put you and your soon-to-be wife on the bottom and God at the top, the closer you draw to God, the closer you get to one another, right? Um, I think that's true in marriage, but I also think that's true for us as the church, that as we draw near to God, we draw near to one another. As we deeply treasure God for all that he is, we start to appreciate the camaraderie and the like-mindedness we have with those other people who treasure the same things that we treasure. And so, in fact, we find that as we, as we draw closer to God, we have this whole Christian community that we have the fellowship of the saints, right? Um, in 1 Peter 1, he talks about how, how since you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. And so we see in that verse that, that what you actually have happening is as we are purified by the truth, there actually becomes unity and a love for one another. 
And I think this is what David is getting at here, that he has learned to treasure the saints because they treasure the God he treasures. And he finds that at the, at the heart of hearts, they have the same thing precious to them as is precious to him. Number four, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So for David and his people, the promised land was their inheritance from God. By God's mighty power, they've been delivered out of the land of Egypt, that they might be his treasured people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to God. Listen to what God promised to them in Deuteronomy 8, 7 to 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. For any of you who've played Settlers of Catan, and I'm sorry if some of you haven't, this is the space with the ore and the wheat and the brick with an eight, nine, and five. So sorry, if you haven't played Settlers, that's going to go right over your head. But if you have, you're going to know what I'm talking about. This is, the, this is the prime place in all of creation. This was, this was God saying, I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I will give you everything you need. I will, I will provide for your every need. You will get to be a people without scarcity, a people who do not want, for I lead you into green pastures, right? This is God saying he will be their, their protector and their provider. And so David, he put his trust in this God. And David found that God was stronger than wild animals when he was a young man being a shepherd. David found that God was stronger than Goliath. David found that God was stronger than the, the foreign armies who held those flags, those banners of idols. And God gave him victory time after time after time. And then David experienced severe moral failings, adultery and murder. And David found that the Lord is in fact gracious, forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. See, David, David found that God was faithful as a refuge. And here at the, at the, uh, the, the, the beginning, I guess the middle of this psalm, we find that David is eating and drinking in this good land that God has given to him. And what is his food? What does David see as his drink? The Lord is my portion and my cup. He doesn't mistake the gift from the giver. He, as he is blessed by God after going through all these trials, what he doesn't lose track of is that it is only because God is being gracious and good to him that he has these things. And so we get to see the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 7, 8 to 10 lived out in part right before our eyes because David is saying in the middle of that, you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. 
So, unlike David eating and drinking in the land that God promised him as an inheritance, that God promised the Israelites as their inheritance, now as we get into our situation, as we get into 1 Peter 1, uh, as we get into the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, um, it says that we are exiles who are nevertheless shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we are exiles now, and yet, even now, we are shielded. God is a refuge for us. His power, all of his power, is shielding us. So we can't forget that, even though we're not in the land yet, even though we're not at rest entirely yet, we do have God's power shielding us. But then we have these great promises, like in Malachi 4, when it talks about a day that is surely coming. It says that a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all evildoers will be chaff, um, and they will have neither root nor branch. But then what happens on that day? That those who fear the Lord will run out like calves leaping out of their stall to inherit the land to live at peace and in freedom on the earth that God has made for us. Ephesians 1 says that when we believed in Jesus, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so in faith that God would fulfill his promise, and God always does fulfill his promises, we pray in the likeness of David, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Even in exile, we have him, right? The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And so despite what circumstances and trials we go through, God will not fail to lead us safely home to dwell with him securely in the rich land he has promised to his children. Eden and the promised land are foretastes and types of what is yet to come. Five, God as counselor and helper. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So the first thing to notice in this verse is that David blesses or praises God because God gives him counsel. David's son Solomon would later write, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. David humbled himself under God's word and direction and in doing so he found a sure-footedness on which to live. God makes wise the simple, but those who are wise in his own eyes, he, in their own eyes, he frustrates their plans. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We should hunger for God's counsel so that we might be saved from our own ignorance and our own folly. The second thing to notice is that even in the night, his heart instructs him. Now, night can have a double meaning. The first way to see night is physical night. When it is dark, quiet, we are utterly alone in the world. For many, this is a time when their minds race and we worry about uh, tomorrow, 
um, we can feel lonely and problems seem to have an even uglier shape. Even in the night, his heart instructed him. The second meaning of night is a figurative one, and it's when all clarity and vision seems lost. When your soul is in a dark place, it feels like all circumstances have turned against you, and you are left feeling exposed, helpless, and you know not what to do or how to make sense of things. This kind of night can be particularly distressing and disorientating. I believe that David is saying that even in that kind of night, his heart instructs him. On a side note, if you want to study night a little bit, if you look in the Gospel of John, there's some very interesting things that happened around this concept of night, um, where he'll, he'll just put in at the end of a story, and it was night, meaning that, that darkness was, was active or at work. Um, and then ultimately Jesus triumphs over that with light. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're looking to, to kind of read, in, read into a bit of a word study there, that's an interesting one. Um, in relation to this, uh, I have been asked at times, and I've often asked myself, how does the heart and emotions fit into making decisions as a Christian? Should I just simply think through what is right or wise? Or do I take into account the feelings of my gut, or maybe what my heart is telling me? I love the assurance of this text and the implications it has for my life. As you set the Lord always, as I set the Lord always before me, as my God and my counselor, it is my whole being that is transformed, not just my mind. My heart is set on the Lord and what's pleasing to him, and therefore even it becomes my instructor. God has won the day as he has won our hearts and made our affections to rest on him. And so as we grow as worshipers, our hearts become increasingly wise and discerning. So in short, God does not want your life to be a series of decisions made with a cold rationality. But he has wrought such a salvation that as we grow in him, even our hearts are made straight and wise, and they instruct us even in the dimness of night. Finally, number six, death overcome. Just when you think the psalm has reached a crescendo with God present as our counselor and helper, who is even making our heart to instruct us in the night, it blares forth into new volumes of deeper hope and deeper implications for security. Up until now, the viper of death has sat as the elephant in the room with fangs bared, just waiting to make a mockery of all God's promises of protection. Is this not the horror of our existence? Although we have energy and vitality, desire and love, we have this deep-rooted dread that it's all for naught, it is all lost. You know that everyone you love is slowly going toward the same dreadful fate that you are, and you fear the pain and the loss that that entails. You know that your strength and vitality, even your desire, will be sucked from your very bones until at last, in a desperate fight for air, death comes upon you with a dreadful finality. Yet, David, not even knowing the full scope of God's defiance of death, he wrote, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. 
you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So it is true that in some sense, God delivered David from many threats of imminent death. God was faithful in protecting him throughout his life. But then the same fate that happens to all of us happened to David too. He died, he was mourned, he was put in a grave, and he rotted. So is this all that the promises of the Psalms are about? The temporary deliverance of King David from death? No, that's not it at all. And actually, uh, in, in Acts 2 in particular, we see that, that this psalm is directly quoted in relation to Jesus um, and his resurrection from the dead. And so we see that this psalm is not only a testimony of how David looked to God to be as, as his place of refuge, but rather this psalm is ultimately prophetic, and we see that Jesus is the true fulfillment of this psalm. And so I want to do something here. I want to read the psalm from start to finish, and let's read it as if Jesus wrote it, as if Jesus is speaking it, and let's see if it fits, okay? Let's see if Jesus could be the ultimate true fulfillment from start to finish of the whole psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So is it not true that Jesus is the one who completely put himself into the hands of God as his refuge? Is it not Jesus who is the one who said, Lord, you are my Lord? Is it not Jesus who, who totally delighted in the saints of the land? He totally delighted in those who loved and delighted in his Father. Is not Jesus the one who has steadfastly refused idol worship and did not join in with those who, who partook of it? He is the one who chose the Lord as his portion, and he has received a beautiful inheritance in his throne and in his saints who love him with a deep love. Jesus praised God and found God to be his counselor to the point where even his heart was true in the night. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. In short, he set the Lord always before him, and consequently, not even death could shake him. God did not abandon his faithful servant. He raised him from the dead. And so because Jesus has gone before us in this way, we can, with bumbling lips 
and imperfect hearts learn to pray this psalm in the likeness of our Savior? Is this not the great hope of our faith, that while we were idolatrous sinners, hostile to God, that God rescued us, that God became our substitute on the cross, he died the death we deserve, and God raised him from the dead. He bore our sin upon himself, and he conquered that sin on the cross. So now, those who through faith entrusted themselves to Jesus are no longer bound to idols. We are in Christ, and as such, we are worshipers of the true God. And now being found in Christ, we get to turn away from idols and learn to love God and obey all that he has commanded. This means that we will be learning to find God as our refuge for the remainder of our days. The psalm finishes by saying, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I wonder, can you go before God and can you say that with conviction this morning? If you have not made God your refuge, I would plead with you, do so. He is the only true and abiding refuge. For those of you who have made him your refuge, I challenge you to live your life with eyes wide open, full of wonderment as you stare at God in astonishment of what he has done in defeating death. Lastly, I would commend to you that you use this psalm to pray this week. Go through the psalm line by line and meditate on how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And then try and pray this psalm directly to God. You might find yourself unable to honestly say parts of it. I know I was surprised when I started going through it how, how fickle and, and unfaithful my heart was in saying, I, I think I believe this, and yet I'm still uncertain. Or I try and believe this, but then by, by 2 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm at work and the situation comes up, I find myself operating on a different assumption. I, I find it so amazing how, how I want to pray this, and yet there's still this wrestle in my heart where when I try and say this to God with a whole heart, I find myself rather being led toward repentance and saying, God, I'm sorry where I have failed. I have not had you as my refuge this week. I have not treasured you as my greatest good. And so the psalm is pretty cool, actually, if you use it as a way of praying, where it both tells you what's important and the importance of God and having him as your refuge and your good and, and delighting in the saints and his, he is your portion. Like, like it leads you along into what's important in life. And then when you're failing and you can't say these things with a whole heart, it leads you in a path of repentance where you can say, God, I'm sorry help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. And so, yeah, I would, I would commend um, using this psalm to pray. I have found it fruitful. Um, I, hope, I hope you do too. May God make us into a people who can pray this psalm to him and mean it. So, near the beginning of the sermon, I quoted Isaiah 24 which speaks of the earth swaggering like a drunken man under the weight of its transgressions, and that tear the pit and the snare are upon us. 
in the next chapter in Isaiah 25, you have this incredible promise. I'm going to read it to you now. God says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. 